the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Imagine, if you will, a cold, very grey winter's day afternoon weekend. It's still, there's no wind. And a single thrush doing its business. those things lovely and evocative I don't care if you don't maybe you do I hope you do oh you're in time thrush with the music one of the better synthesizer players of the avian world heads up for tomorrow evening something kind of special simon winchester what a tremendous author his books are immaculately researched on big big fat meaty subjects the map that changed the world oh that was a fantastic thing his new book's called exactly how precision engineering changed the world we live in uh, marvelous stories there and the neat thing about simon winchester unlike a lot of authors actually you in when he, sp he speaks really, really well. I would call him an A-grade raconteur. The stories he tells are just marvellous. We managed to corner him for about 40 minutes and we will be playing that interview after 10 o'clock tomorrow evening. Don't miss it. Tremendous stories. You know, unsung heroes who found out how to measure something exactly. And that opened the door for other people to become famous. And celebration of engineers who are, when you think about it, the people that get things done. You can write all day on your chalkboard if you want. Blackboard equation equals X. But until somebody goes out there and actually does something... It's just an equation. All right, I'll stop raving about that, but don't miss him. Simon Winchester tomorrow night after 10 o'clock. There you go. Max Cryer will be answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. The word of the week this week is slaughter. Next up, though, James Crute reflecting on a couple of iconic all-time great movies that have their birthday, their 50th birthday, I think right about now, 1968, an astounding year in many ways. We discuss this with examples. James Crute at Cinema when we return. Good evening. Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, hello. G'day Graham, how are you? Good. I say that with some hello 
enthusiasm because we're looking back to 1968 because we like round numbers and we've got 10 fingers. That's the only reason, really, it's preposterous, <laughs> but who cares? Man, 1968, what a year for almost anything you could imagine, other than badminton, I think. Political upheavals, June the 6th, the anniversary of uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King, riots. The Beatles were doing quite well. The Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix. What a thing 1968 was. And add on top of that, a couple of movies were released which are now just utterly timeless. Tell us what they are. James, you're the movie guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm just going to divert slightly because you mentioned 1968 and just prior to these two films which we're going to talk about being released was one of the nuttiest Oscar races in its history. Really? Which is so reflective of what you've talked about. And people have written books about this year as well. Okay, so the five movies that were nominated for Best Picture for 1968, which means they basically came out in 67, Mm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Oh, yeah. The Graduate. Yeah. Dr. Doolittle. Bonnie and Clyde, and In the Heat of the Night. Does that not tell you of the times they are a-changing? Yeah, guess who's coming to dinner, Sydney, what's his name? Quite, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And, oh... In the Heat of the Night, which was such a steamy kind of, um, you know, racially charged sort of movie as well. Um, You know, Virgil Tibbs. Of course, that also had Sydney Poitier in it as well. yeah. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Yeah. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, which, of course, you know, while being an old kind of, uh, you know, set much earlier sort of thing, was, you know, a, a fabulous kind of anti-establishment sort of movie. Dr. Doolittle was a, a, a absolutely nuts musical with a guy who couldn't sing. But I can watch Rex Harrison all day. I love him. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, The Graduate, which was, uh, you know, a coming-of-age movie, which kind of shocked America at the time. Where are you now, Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. As the song, Mrs. Robinson, what a thing. Yep. But, of course, that heralds uh, two very uh, much-loved sci-fi films which came out, which are being celebrated at 50th anniversaries this year, including some special screenings um, struck from a 70mm print, supervised by Christopher Nolan, that, that one of those few lovers of film as film, Closing up, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It is so, It is just an all-time great, isn't it? For goodness sake. It is, but it's kind of nuts at the same time. You wouldn't be able to make a movie like that these days. No. Um, you know, as the uh, publicity so famously described it, and I think this publicity came a little bit later, The Ultimate Trip, because there were a number of people who went to see this while, well... Yeah. In an alternative frame of mind, let's say that. Yeah. Although a car wash is just about as good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 2001, it succeeds on so many levels. So brave. Don't show the aliens. You know who suggested don't show the aliens? Who suggested don't show the aliens? Carl freaking Sagan. Yeah, Carl freaking Sagan. Good on great. him. And what a brilliant idea, don't show the aliens. You can never, you would never get it right. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's the journey of man, isn't it, mm. essentially? Yeah. Um, it's based on an Arthur C. Clarke short story called The Sentinel. Um, it, it uses classical music to amazing effect. Uh, Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube yeah. and Richard Strauss's Also Sprach's Zarustra. Yep, yep, the Superman thing. He liked his Nietzsche, did Richard Strauss. <laughs> he did, didn't he? It's a bit of a simple thing, but it works. It's, it really has an impact. Yeah, exactly. But also the famous match shots. Kubrick and his editors, editor Ray Lovejoy here, who who did that amazing shot of uh, the ape throwing the bone oh. and the spaceship, you know, orbiting in space, essentially. Yeah. Just yeah. incredible. Just, I mean, it's just such a poetic, balletic kind of film. But it's also, you know, this deep thinking kind of story. The plot kind of disappears at certain points and then comes back and of course it kind of presaged so many kind of technological advances as well yeah it um, did that famous scene of course is now etched in our cultural memory and we're approaching it aren't we open the pod bay doors Hal. i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that what's the problem I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. <laughs> That's the thing. And, of course, Hal. Now, if you yeah. think of the letters of Hal, they were deliberately chosen for being one letter away from a particular computer company. Is that verified? Oh, I don't know, but it just seems too good not to be true, doesn't it? does, it? doesn't it? IBM, if you, yeah, you don't precisely. want to do the math at home. Also, there are scenes that people now claim of the uh, astronauts on the spaceship looking at tablets. It's the iPad, for want of a better word. But, I mean, this is 1968. And Arthur C. Clarke, he's kind of famous for getting a few things right. He got a few things wrong, too. We just don't look at those. No. Well, he wasn't to know that everybody would abandon the space program the way they did. Unforeseen complexity and boredom. Yep. It's a classic. It's an all-time great. But it's also amazing how the actors within it never really had much of a career after it. Kia Delia, David Bowman, you know, this should have been the start of a, an amazing Hollywood sort of career, but it yeah. never really kicked off. I mean, one of the most famous people, of course, in this, playing Dr. Andre Smyslov, is Leonard Rossiter. Oh, <laughs> the British And it just seems such... <laughs> such weird casting in a way. Yeah, who just went on to be famous in British television. That's right, Fallen Rise of Reginald Parent. That's it, yeah. He didn't get where he was today without <laughs> appearing in 2001 in Space Odyssey. Yeah, but exactly. Look, there are opportunities around the country. Various cinemas are playing it this weekend, so there'll be sessions on Sunday. I think basically at least one cinema in all the major cities anyway. While, of course... There aren't many, might only be about one cinema that's still got projection equipment that could actually play a 70mm image, but the DCPs that have been struck off it, it's deliberately 
not a pristine, new-looking thing, uh-huh. this 50th anniversary version of uh, 2001. Nolan has deliberately <laughs> reinserted bits of fluff and uh, spots, so it looks like it would have been projected in 1968. I see. They've put a patina on it to sell it at an antiques show. That's right. It's deliberately a bit old looking. (laughs) Okay. Which is the way we like it, really, in a lot of ways. And I believe, Graham, just because I know how much you love these, I believe there are certain cinemas, the one that springs to mind, the Roxy Cinema in Wellington, they're even going to have a 15-minute intermission. Oh, yes. I'd go to a movie just for the intermission. That seems crazy, but I would. Oh, wonderful. Something you said in just talking about 2001 that struck me and gave me a a little small heartache when you said you couldn't make a movie like that today. No one would show it. You would say it would be mad. And we're talking about an all-time great, and that makes me think, what the hell are we missing? Unless you've got some really maverick director. I think Christopher Nolan's perhaps the only one who could make something like this now. There are so few directors who have the power yeah. uh, to be able to make something as audacious and crazy and not a sequel or a franchise. I mean, Spielberg might. And, of course, Spielberg had a go at a Kubrick story in terms of AI mm. and was kind of panned for what he did. I actually love that film. <laughs> One of the things people who see the Spielberg documentary, which I believe is playing at the Doc Edge Festival on Sunday night. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> nice little segue there they'll see that he got pilloried for using Kubrick's ending to the oh, story. Everybody oh. thought it was such a Spielberg ending and, you know, really schmaltzy and that kind of thing. But it was Kubrick's ending. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Stanley Kubrick, hats off. Uh, let's move on to the other. And I actually find it surprising that it was released in uh, 1968. The ultimate movie where a spoiler means everything and here it is but i think we're well past spoiler stage aren't we james absolutely (laughs) here's the end of planet of the apes he's on a beach horse oh my god yes i'm home all the time. We finally really did it. You maniac! Yes! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! As he looks at a slightly worse for wear Statue of Liberty and realises he is actually on Earth. There is a time when everyone sees that for the first time. I remember, without a spoiler, watching it, and I went, wow! Definitely one of the first kind of wow moments, really, in in a movie. I think it was that era's version of uh, Empire Strikes Back, wasn't it, in terms of a wow moment? Yeah. But, of course, it had more resonance, didn't it? You know, all of a sudden it became this even bigger sort of allegory for our current lives and stuff like that. And it's interesting that one of the people who was originally behind this adaptation of Pierre Bou's novel was Rod Serling, who, of course, was famous for The Twilight Zone. And, Ah. you know, it has that kind of Twilight Zone feeling. I'm trying to remember, off the top of my head, that's not the ending in the book, is it? I don't know. From memory, I think the ending in the book is the one that Tim Burton 
used. So while we've had a number of Planet of the Apes films, only one has essentially remade the original, and it was a bit of a disaster yeah. because it was just the wrong era to make it, I guess, because we were in between prosthetics and CGI, and it all became a bit of a mess. Yeah, the ending there had him travelling back to Earth. Yeah. And discovering a monkey, you know, in the Lincoln Memorial, it was a it was a monkey instead of Abraham Lincoln. Actually, I should be careful what I'm saying. I don't want to do a Roseanne here or anything before I get to relax, James. <laughs> but look, it was a truly amazing movie at the time, and it still holds up today. I mean, despite the number of sequels and prequels and all that kind of thing, and the prequels have done a good job yeah. of opening yeah. out the story. It'll be interesting to see where someone dares to kind of connect the dots between the trilogy that we've recently had and the original five movies. I mean, it gave Roddy McDowell such a kind of crazy career as well, didn't it? it really? did. Now, okay, a couple of things. The Planet of the Apes franchise, very successful today. I don't know why. I had to watch one on a plane. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I suppose, there you go. I'm, I'm a customer. Uh, but but I, I was kind of hate watching it. I don't get it. After the original, I just gave up. Underneath Planet of the Apes, what, what, it's like you stick anything. Unicorn shark attacks with Planet of the Apes or something. I don't get it. I mean, the second one was about turning it into a nuclear allegory and people's obsessions with nuclear testing and nuclear bombs and that kind of thing. And then they started to travel back in time and it became oh, yeah. it became very much a kind of a George Lucas idea where yeah. you're connecting the dots to the bits you already know. Mm. You know, so the only anticipation was and at what point are we gonna see the switch flipped? Which yeah. is kind of what the prequel series has been about as well, you right. know. I oh, know I've had enough of the monkeys. <laughs> enough, enough monkeys already. Anyway, about Ro Roddy McDowell. In Planet of the Apes, it's amazing that he still looks like Roddy McDowell, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's it. But that's also one of the criticisms of the Tim Burton thing, oh. is that Helena Bonham Carter looks too much like Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, right, okay. And that Paul Giamatti looked too much like Paul Giamatti. I mean, I guess the advantage that they had in the 68 version was these were a lot of actors that people didn't really know yeah. outside of it. And it's only us looking at it in hindsight that we go, Roddy McDowell! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Okay, I just have one other fun fact regarding Planet of the Apes. Very go. good friend of mine, uh, his mother was one of the chimpanzees. Wow. In, in Planet of the Apes. And on his bedside table, in his bedroom in this in the states he's got a picture of his mother <laughs> it's written in the planet of the apes i when i first saw it i said Stephen, what is this picture for he says that's my mom <laughs> she that's was in planet of the apes i just thought that's so lovely it is lovely yeah okay james we'll leave it there where are these things showing where can we see them so planet of the apes hasn't got any kind of release strategy at the moment okay. well that's a very technical term um but 2001 is definitely playing uh, in a couple of cinemas in auckland one in christchurch one in wellington and scattered around the place so if you check out something like flicks.co.nz they'll have aggregated yep. where it's playing everywhere but yeah well worth checking out especially if you've never seen it before and the chance to see it on a big screen Whoa. yeah yeah why not It'll be an event. Lovely. Thank you very much, James. Next no up, worries. Max Cryer answering your questions on words, origin and meaning and the word of the week, slaughter. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Words with Max Cryer.
Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words from books, words of comfort. Here he is. Hello, Max. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Uh, if you want to ask Max something, you probably know how to do it, but if you don't, I always assume somebody's listening for the first time. You can go to the Facebook page, leave a message. You can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, and there's an email form there, and I forward your questions to Max, and he does the books. Um, not in an accounting way, but in a researchy way. You can also write an ordinary letter, P.O. Box, 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. That's S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, P.O. Box, 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. Before we address your questions on the English language, uh, let's look at a word for this week, slaughter. Yes, slaughter. Well, it describes killing, um, usually in one of two categories. Oh, you're talking mycobivus plasmarochibi meniger. I'm not, I'm just talking about the word. Oh, but that's where it came from, the cows that are all dying? Well, it's word of the week, you see. People yeah. are interested in knowing um, where it comes from. I understand that, yes. but I'm just seeing the attachment to the events of the week. Yes. It would be something to do with cows. Just that, admit it, Max. That's your prerogative. Thank you. <laughs> Slaughter describes killing in one of two categories. Either a particularly brutal and violent killing of one person, or more commonly the killing of large numbers of either livestock, cattle, sheep or killing large numbers of people such as in conditions of war like many words uh, in english this one has an origin across the channel from the continent but in this case the influence is scandinavian which is unusual god i thought you meant australia then for a minute no no we're speaking about the word originated in english right sorry <laughs> and uh, its influence is uh, scandinavian it started centuries ago with the ancient nordic word sla which meant to strike, and that travels through Old Norse as slatra, to butcher, as in killing an animal for meat, and then the middle of that word lengthened slightly when it became the Scandinavian slatra, killing of cattle or killing persons. And sometimes in the 1200s that moved across to Britain and it became slaughter, the killing of one but usually more beings uh. in a violent way. It's interesting the GH is in there. That's a little fossil, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yes, we could take it out, actually. It would still say slaughter. It would, but I like those things that are left in there because they hint at what the, where the word came from and how it used to be pronounced. And they stop the foreigners from learning our language properly. Exactly. <laughs> well alone. <laughs> All right. Uh, on to answering some of the questions that you've tabled for Max. How was the inbox? It looked quite busy today. It's quite busy at the moment, actually. This is an age-old question, and oh, I, I wonder about it, and lots of people wonder about it. Do you say or write affect or effect? What is the difference? What are their usages? It's tricky. It really is tricky. Isn't they, it? They both have a connection of meaning that something has been changed. Now, of the two, effect is usually a noun, meaning that something has been accomplished. Quote, her house was furnished in such a way that although it was in Greymouth, it had the effect of being in Italy. Now, the scenery on the stage was so good that it gave a definite effect of a nighttime street in London. So there you have a noun. But effect could also, very occasionally, and here's the trouble, be used as a verb. 
Quote, the new boss was determined to effect a different system of office management. So, either as a noun or a verb, effect is normally indicative that change, something has happened, is happening now or in the future could happen. If cell phone use is approved in cars, it is bound to effect an upsurge in accidents. You see? Mm. It's, now al that's it's almost like a, the to do. Isn't it? And that way, the E-F-F-E-C, you effect a change, you, you effect, you know... Well, well, the change is going to cause... An, you're saying in advance that if yeah. such and such happens, a change mm. will happen. So you say, if you, if you legalise cell phones being used in cars, mm. it will effect yeah. a change. Yep. Now, we're going to move on to affect. Affect is slightly different and a bit dodgy. It often means that a change has happened. It's usually a verb like this. His study was intended to show how alcohol, alcohol affects reaction time or intense storm conditions affected several districts or after only six weeks in America, she was affecting a very dodgy American accent. Mm. Nutrition affects your health. These are okay because you're indicating that a definite change has occurred. It can also become an adjective as in affectionate meaning well-disposed, favourable. Uh, although he lived in a big city, the man had an affectionate regard for the little town from which he came. Now, affect can sometimes be used as a verb. Living on a lighthouse affected his attitude towards crowded places. A change has happened. So I agree with the listener that affect and effect can be tricky to get right. Use effect as a verb or a noun when appropriate, but do be careful with affect. It's safe to use as a verb, tricky to use as a noun. Yeah, it is. So we need another word, maybe. Another word? Yeah, invent one. Well, you can invent it. I'll, I'll, give, you the, I'll give you the ability next week. Okay. <laughs> I'll think of a good one. Now, oh, this is, a, this is me abusing my position in the broadcasting chair. I was reading a beautiful book by uh, author... A.A. Gill, The Golden Door, and he's a gorgeous writer, beautiful turn of phrase. He was just describing um, what his family did in the oldie days and used the word shoddy. Have you got the sentence there? I haven't got it in front of me, Max, how we used it in the book. Uh, I may have it buried in the script, but um, mm -hmm. it's not in the beginning, and I'm looking at the beginning, waiting for you to wave me in. No. Oh. Well, let's see how we go. It all will be explained, I'm sure. It's to do with the word shoddy. Max, off you go. Well, shoddy, the question was, listeners, can it be a noun as well as an adjective? And the answer is yes, it certainly can. Or to be accurate, once upon a time, it was a very well-respected noun. It's very sad, actually, because it slowly drifted into being a not-respectable adjective. Nobody knows the actual ancestry of the word, shoddy, where it came from and why. It's simply not known. But the meaning of it was perfectly clear in Yorkshire 200 years ago, where the word shoddy was the name of a very desirable fabric woven in Yorkshire by expert weavers. The fabric had, the, had some percentage of content from old woolen fabric, which had passed its used date and was now shredded and mixed in with fresh new wool. And the resulting cloth was very much respected. Good 100% woolen cloth, and the word naming it, shoddy, was also respected. But 
Come the late 1800s, other manufacturers, having observed what the Yorkshire experts were doing, started to experiment with adding a percentage of cotton fibre into their mix instead of all wool. And developed a tension between the wool weaving factories of Yorkshire and the not-so-respected weavers of the South. One reason being that Yorkshire shoddy, being 100% wool, wasn't easy to make in elegant colours. But the imitation shoddy, because it had hidden cotton in it, was easier to tint with fashionable shades. On one front, the southern version didn't win because there was a growing perception and disapproval that the shoddy they were producing was inferior in quality and the Yorkshire weave of Orwell was better. So very gradually, the word shoddy began slowly to move from being first-class all-wool fabric made in Yorkshire to refer only to the cheaper imitation made in the South. There was a midpoint, 1851, when the social reformer Henry Mayhew, comparing the genuine wool shoddy of the North with the new inferior version made in the South, which included waste cotton, Mr Mayhew said... To this stuff with its cotton rags in the mix, the name of shoddy is given, but the real and orthodox shoddy is a production of the woolen districts. By the late 1800s, examples of shoddy, meaning inferior, began appearing in the British press. So gradually, shoddy soon joined sleazy, seedy, shabby, second-rate, scruffy, slipshod, all terms meaning cheap and nasty. And the first-class manufacturers in the north of England were loath to keep using that word in their advertising. Now it had taken on the second-rate meaning. But the northern newspapers continued to proudly offer shoddy goods for sale throughout the 1800s. Eventually, um, they, they had to give up the battle as shoddy became firmly established as a term of disparagement. You'll find it actually in Gilbert and Sullivan in the opera The Gondoliers, 1889, when you have nothing else to wear but cloth of gold and satins rare, for cloth of gold you cease to care, up goes the price of shoddy, meaning uh, cheap fabric. Right. So the answer to the question is that shoddy can be a noun, but very rare and not, and not much appreciated. Uh. It's better as an adjective. So... Shoddy has two developments. A term for someone selling cheap clothes became known as a shoddy dropper. And for some unknown reason, the word shoddy is used to name small stones in a quarry. What? Small stones in a quarry in some places are referred to not as gravel, but as shoddy. Heavens, really? I, I can't, I can only guess it's because they're sort of remnants of big stones. Right, right, There's right. something about them that's not uh, all that valuable. Yeah, there's a vague similarity. It's a complex answer. I apologise for the complexity, but the question was, is it l l valid to use it as a noun or a verb or an adjective? And uh, it is, but it's quite complex to explain how. No, no, that was reasonably explained. I followed it completely. Oh, good. Um, I think the line from the A.A. Gill book was something along the lines of, my great-grandparents... Wo uh, unwove and wove uh, materials in their mill uh, to make shoddy 
and made a jangle of change in the process. Ah, yes, well, that's a perfect use of it because grandma and grandpa, whoever they were, um, Shoddy did have a proportion of real wool off sheep mm. and sometimes wool that had been discarded for some reason, but it was all wool. I'd never heard Shoddy ever used as a noun before, so well, that after, I thought, what is this Shoddy well, stuff? Well, I think that must have been written, correct me if, you're wrong, if I'm wrong, oh, yeah. in 1851, before 1851. Right, right. Yeah, because it changed in 1881. 51 and now it just means messy right uh, we'll take a short break actually they're all pretty much the same size uh, when we return Max will be answering more of your questions on uh, words of origin and meaning smell of an oily rag pom-pom we may get to dribble we may get to rodeo the weekend variety wireless with Dock Edge Festival for details visit dockedge.nz Max Cryer Kind of a public service in some ways, uh, answering questions about. <laughs> I'm a public service. Let's try the public service. Uh, answering questions about the massive thing, which is the English language. You can ask Max a question, a message on Facebook, email from the webpage, or write P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. A very well known phrase. Somebody's asked its origin or something about it in any case. Smell of an oily rag. Yeah, the question was, what is the background to the expression, to live on the smell of an oily rag? It's one of those awkward ones where the expression is easy to understand, quite versatile, and it can be traced back to an early use, 1914, in Ireland. The exact origin before that point is not 100% certain, but the most respected theory is that in those early years, we're speaking 1914 in Ireland, and in the century before, the 1800s, not everyone could afford carpeting, or sometimes not even rugs. So the floors were often plain wood. But housewives who would like their house to look as good as it could, and that meant most housewives, would use a very small amount of oil on an old rag and rub the floorboards hard until they shone. So it became possible to describe their whole life status and financial position to say they could live on the smell of an oil rag. The term was used in Ireland uh, around, around the 1900s and then it went into print in 1910 when the Irish writer James Joyce wrote of a character in uh, the work called Ivy Day in the committee room and he described the mean lifestyle of this man. He had, he said, quote, he would live on the smell of an oil rag, end of quote. Now, that didn't mean that he wiped his floors. It meant that he was living on very little money. So it changed, you see, by 1910 from the floor to the income. It described the, the mean lifestyle of a man who lived on the smell of an oily rag. But for some strange reason, the expression is now almost never used in the Northern Hemisphere. It's generally thought of as being Australian or New Zealand origin. Really? Yes, although it's not. And, um, James Joyce was certainly not Australian or New Zealand. It's generally acknowledged that its first known appearance in print was certainly in Ireland. Over time, in Australia, it's been recorded that the expression has developed a side issue and is sometimes heard describing a car's fuel efficiency. Mate, she'd run on the smell of an oily rag, meaning a car. Right. And not a floor, and not a lifestyle. Running on fumes, sometimes they say. Do they? Yeah, if you're low on gas, oh, we're just running on fumes. Or There's faith. no liquid left on faith. Or faith. <laughs> <laughs> Try that uh, when crossing the road, closing your eyes. Don't. Okay. 
Pom Pom. Uh, I'm assuming this is one of these big fluffy things that cheerleaders exactly wave about <laughs> for entertainment's sake. Generally perceived as a decorative ball or tuft of fibrous material. And the term may refer to those floppy tufts used by cheerleaders or a smaller ball-shaped trim attached to a hat or a fancy dress costume. And the word came into English from French, pompon, with an N. And here's the sad bit. Nobody knows. Nobody ever has known. No one knows exactly how the word came into being. There is no knowledge at all of its origin. So pom-pom is officially described in the Oxford Dictionary as origin unknown. Ah. Uh, That's pretty rare. I like those. Pom oh, oh, origins unknown. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I lie. have great satisfaction in finding out and telling the listener where it goes. Yeah, it's, it's those mysterious things. Something must have happened, but the link has just been lost. Well, I suppose words can just pop out of nowhere, and no, and they pop out of somewhere. Someone thinks of one, and everyone starts using it, and they, the origins unknown. Often in families, though. Families sometimes invent a word to, to mention some sort of yeah. happening in the family, and it remains in that family forever. Yeah, yeah. If they had a really, really big family, it could spread. Ha-ha! Well, it might, but um, we'd never know. No. All right. Uh, how did we get the word drivel? D-R-I-V-E-L. Drivel is pretty difficult, too. Um, the most accepted theory is that drivel, meaning nonsense or useless information, was gradually derived from the ancient word draff, that's D-R-A-F-F, -F, which originally meant the mess left of malt after brewing. And by the 1300s, that word had spread into the wider meaning of any kind of rubbish. Chaucer uses it that way. But somehow a movement took place in the, world's, in the word's shape and meaning, so that drivel grew into meaning actual saliva, which when it escapes from the mouth uncontrollably is useless and its best asset being kept inside the mouth where it has some use. So somehow over the centuries, draff, that's D-R-A-F-F, draff, the mess left after brewing is believed to have modified into drivel, which originally meant saliva, but came to widen the use. So it's not just saliva now, but any form of speech or writing which was nonsensical, of no value, is referred to as just drivel, even if it's something quite important. It means the person doesn't like it. Mm. They call it drivel, oh. even if it's something sort of important. Yeah, heard in Parliament. What a lot of drivel. <laughs> the man's just been expanding. You're an member from Ohio. Okay. Well, you know, V's and B's, they swap around in the English language a lot, and Latin, you know, tavern, tabern, yes. that sort of thing. Is it, um, not meaning to put you on the spot, but I am, dribble. It's, it's, it's got to be related, eh? Well, we don't know. Oh. I mean, um, I, I live surrounded by tomes of information which usually do know those things, and if they say they don't know, yeah. uh, I think your suggestion is quite sort of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I can't say that it's valid. Okay. We'll await the, await the verdict. From whom? You. Oh, me? You and your books that you're just, just showing off about. I just did drivel. I know, but I want to see if dribble is related because V's and B's swap around a lot. I'll have a look next, Thank you. next week. Next week I'll have a look. We kiss and make up. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> Why is a certain event called a rodeo? Nice question. This is where they... 
torture cattles, <laughs> cattle and horses for human entertainment. Well, it, it, English isn't the only language which derives words from Latin. Um, sometimes we share history, and this is one example. In Latin, the word rota basically meant wheel, and from roto came the Latin word rotatus, meaning to which came to mean revolve mm. and, and rotate. And that same ancestry from that same Latin word rotatus gave Spanish the word rodear, meaning to go around, to surround. Oh. So in Spain, that word rodear was used to refer to a pen for cattle at a fair or market. And in English, during the 1800s, the same word, in a slightly anglicised form, rodeo, referred to um, a cattle roundup. Moving cattle. Now, the same thing was happening in America, parts of America. There was evidence of many words of Spanish derivation, e.g. Los Angeles, meaning the angels, Las Vegas, meaning the meadows. And in parts of America, the word rodeo was used to describe the process of gathering cattle for various purposes, such as moving them to new pastures, separating the cattle owned by different ranchers, or gathering in preparation for slaughter. So... But gradually, the word rodeo started being used to refer to exhibitions of skills in gathering and sorting out cattle. And this evolved from these yearly gatherings. Festivities were held, and the horsemen could demonstrate their skills. It was that latter usage which was adopted into the cowboy tradition of America, and gradually the word was adopted around the world. Mm. So gradually, the American usage of the term rodeo drifted into English to mean a public exhibition of cowboy skills, usually in the form of a competitive event. And it all goes back to the, the Latin word for a wheel going round. Right. Okay. Um, sweetheart of the Rodeo. Who did that? Oh, the birds. That's right. Sweetheart of the Rodeo? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll move on to... Yeah, please do. <laughs> ...today... What's happened today? Something to play after you've done that. What happened today in 1949? Well, it wasn't 1949. In 1949, an award structure was set up by the New Zealand Sportsman magazine, mm. and the trophy was worded, quote, the New Zealand Sportsman's Trophy to be awarded annually to the New Zealand athlete whose personal performances or example has had the most beneficial effect on the advancement of sport in the country. End of quote. It was announced that the first award would go to cricketer Bert Sutcliffe, oh. who, 68 years today, on this date, June the 2nd, 19, in 1950, he stepped forward to receive his award. In the speech, which was quite historic, Mr Sutcliffe hoped that the survey and awarding would go to the rounds of various sports and, quote, he hoped it would include women because women were making as great a contribution to sport as men were. And the award structure was changed the following year to include women and was won by Yvette Williams. Oh, and she was a champion, world champion. Well, that's what he, what he meant. Yeah. Bert Sutter said you can't overlook, you know, of course not. women. Helsinki gold, wasn't it? Yes. I think. Mm -hmm. Yvette Williams, marvellous stuff. Thank you, Max. Your sweetheart of the rodeo by the birds. That distinctive cover and their distinctive sound. Oh, we'll just pick one at random. This will be good. Sweetheart of the Rodeo for our rodeo theme, uh, which is finished off in uh, also a sporting manner. Bert Sutcliffe, he was a legend. Yes, indeed. Yes. 1953, Boxing Day test. Not Boxing Day, was it? Yeah. It was Boxing Day in South Africa.
got hit by... What's his name? Alcock, I think. Smashed his ear almost off. Ooh. He had to bat with this towel around his head. Oh, no. And there was a pool of blood. Oh, no. Just by the wickets. But kept going. Kept going. Mm. Kept going. Mm. And his mate, um, Bob Blair, his fiancé, he just found out had been killed in the Tangiwai disaster. <sighs> he was at home, inconsolable. Bert Suckler got hit on the head, then they were all out. Uh, someone else got out. And Bob Blair made it from the hotel and walked out. Having, he, he's in deep grief and is shaken by the hand. The, the crowd goes up and see, they understand what's going on. That he came out there to bat again to try and um, get the team past the follow-on. And... It's just one of the most moving things you could ever imagine. And it shakes hands with Bert Suckliffe. There's a pool of blood where he goes to take his mark. Bert's got this towel around his head. Oh. Well, I still give full marks to Bert Suckliffe for as long ago as that. What's that? Um, 53. Oh, you're talking 49. Well, when he made the speech yeah. uh, in, in 1950. At that stage, it wasn't always on everyone's mind that women were part of the sporting scene. Mm. But he said this should not be called the sportsman's, sportsman's award. No, it should include women. It's very good. But what are they wanting next? The vote. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good one. Hear the birds. Thanks, Max.